guess it was the end of time for that thing. No, but anyway, um, we're going to be covering a lot of end times prophecy, but we were in Matthew chapter 24, and we decided a few weeks ago to kind of branch off and go into Daniel chapter 9, and the reason we did that was they have similar subject matter. Uh, In Matthew 24, it's talking about end times prophecy, and Daniel chapter 9, in my opinion, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, end times prophecy in scripture. Uh, So we decided to start looking at that, and we're going to be here for a few weeks, but um, we actually last week started that 70-week prophecy, and there's just so much in here. We only got to cover uh, the first 69 weeks of that 70-week prophecy, and last week we learned that this prophecy covers 70 groups of seven years, which is 490 years. A bunch of you guys must have went to East Noble. Anyway, Let me read this. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24, says, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So uh, first we we learned how God was going to accomplish this 70 weeks. And uh, this is just such such a perfect, perfect, prophecy because it's really one of the only prophecies you'll find in scripture that gives you a timeline that you can actually follow and I got to be careful not to re-preach last week but it gives us a very specific timeline if you look at Daniel 9 25 it says uh, so you are to know and discern from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks it will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress uh, we learned that King Artaxerxes actually issued that decree, right, some time ago. But it's real important to understand that when you start counting this timeline, when it says week, the word week just means a group of seven. Just like we use the word dozen, they use the word week to represent a group of seven. Now, it was obvious that he was talking about groups of seven years. That's how we come up with the 490 years. And so uh, Gabriel made that really evident. So we actually did the math last week, and we, and we timed it from the time that that decree was issued until Messiah the Prince, which meant the triumphal entry of Christ, and it was exactly on the Jewish calendar, 483 years to the day, which is amazing in and of itself, but that's just the beginning of what we're going to learn. So that's the fastest I can recap that. <sighs> okay, so we're going to dive in this week. Uh, now, we're going to start covering the things that, that follow the 69th week. So follow along. Daniel 9, 26. It says, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Now remember, the 62 weeks, it says seven weeks and 62 weeks. So those were consecutive. So it's talking about the first 483 years. But it says, it says Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolations are determined. Okay, so again, the first 69 weeks started with that decree and ended with the triumphal entry. Okay, now, here's what's where it starts to get really cool, okay? If you notice, it doesn't say the 70th week started. It tells us when the 69th week ends. It's when Jesus came in, made his triumphal entry. You know, they were saying Hosanna and putting the palm branches in front of him. It tells us that's when the 69th week ends. But it doesn't tell us when the 70th week begins. It didn't say that it did. And remember, last week we learned that, that this prophecy never says that the 70 weeks are going to be consecutive. As a matter of fact, it's on God's like profi- prophetic stopwatch. And he can start and stop it whenever he wants. But he tells us whenever he does. 
right? And he never said that the 70th week started yet, okay? So we know that there is a time span between the end of the 69th week and the beginning of the 70 week, of the 70th week. So this, this is a lot, all right? Now, at the end of the 69th week, when it said the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, this is interesting because the word translated cut off here uh, in the Greek is used to describe, uh, or in the Hebrew, rather, is used to describe an execution. This is the word they would use when they were describing an execution. So when it says the Messiah would be cut off, it meant that that was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, okay? But again, since then, the stopwatch has, has stopped. I mean, there's, ever since he entered in Jerusalem, it stopped. We're in this undetermined time span. And I'm going to explain that a little bit later. We'll jump into that. But notice it also says that he will have nothing. Okay, and this is interesting because the reason he came the first time was that he was going to offer Israel that kingdom, that messianic kingdom that God promised Abraham. And he came to offer it to him. But no matter what he tried, he did miracles. He raised people from the dead. He walked on water. He calmed storms. He fed thousands with a few fish and a few loaves. No matter what he did, miracle or not, no matter how prolific his, his sayings, they just refused to believe in him because they had become so religious and power-hungry and greedy, they just refused to believe in him. So since they refused to believe in him, he couldn't establish their kingdom. The reason he came was to establish their kingdom. All right, now this is, this is really, really important. When it says he has nothing, it's talking about, or he would have nothing, it was talking about uh, with regard to his relationship with Israel. They didn't form one. So he had nothing, meaning he had no relationship with him. All right, they just refused, so he couldn't establish that kingdom that he wanted to, to give them. And as a matter of fact, he also had nothing materially, because if you remember, after he died, he was put in a borrowed tomb. So he didn't even have anything materially. All right, now, the next thing's pretty interesting, because Jesus said that, uh, one of the things that Jesus said here, no one would actually understand for like several years afterwards, but when it happened, they would understand. Now, let's look at this, Daniel nine twenty six, the second part says, the people of the prince who is to come. Now, let me stop for a second. The people of the prince who is to come. The people are the Romans. Okay, and I'll explain why here in a minute. The prince who is to come. Notice it didn't say the king who is to come. It said the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come was the general Titus, the Roman general Titus. And he was like second in command, pretty much. He was very big in Rome, right? And it says, we'll destroy the city and sanctuary. So this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in 70 A.D. And he came in, and I, we've talked about this, just absolutely destroyed the city, destroyed the sanctuary. When that happened, I believe a lot of people understood what they were talking about in that prophecy. But he attacked them and just destroyed absolutely everything. But you would think when they saw that, when they said, oh my gosh, this is what they were talking about. You would think they would believe then. But they still refused to believe in Jesus. I mean, they not only heard about the miracles or witnessed the miracles and all the great things he had done and seen his prophecy come to life. But here, this is a huge prophecy. He said they're going to destroy the city and sanctuary. And you know what happens? They still refuse to believe in him. And when I was reading this, I couldn't help but think that, you know, sadly, it kind of seems like our society today is almost as committed to unbelief as the, Jew as the Jews were. Have you noticed that? And it drives me crazy because it seems like every day and every year we get farther from the foundation that we set up when we established this country. 
I mean, God was a very part of the fiber of our foundation when we started this country. And yet every year we grow farther and farther away from it. And every year we become more and more like a secular country. And it just drives me crazy when I think of that. I think of this condition of Israel, right? They just refuse to believe no matter what, despite the fact that Christ had done so many things. Have you noticed that, that Christian people, when they're portrayed in the media, are portrayed as buffoons and idiots and, and, you know, they act like we're a bunch of backwood hicks. You know, howdy, because we're Christians. You notice that? And we're, we're closed-minded and, you know, it just makes us, it just drives me crazy. And I can see the enemy behind that. And that's how the enemy was working here with the Jews. So let's move on. i got a lot to cover today. So let's discuss that undetermined time span, okay, that we talked about between the 69th and the 70th week. Now, does anybody know what this undetermined time span is called? <laughs> Close. It's called the church age. It's called the church age, right? See, since Israel rejected Jesus, God offered their kingdom to everyone. Now, I want you to understand something. When people hear that, they think, gosh, that kind of makes me feel bad. Because had the Jews accepted it, we wouldn't even have had a chance. Listen, God knew before he created the world, they were going to reject that. We were always a part of the plan. When people say that, that the, you know, Israel is in somehow, you know, God loves them more. Yes, they were his special people, but let's remember, we all came from Adam and Eve, right? It's not like there was a Gentile couple that started in creation, <laughs> you know? We all came from the same people. The difference between Gentiles and Jews were the Gentiles sought after other gods, and the Jews originally sought after God. So because they refused, he actually offered their kingdom to everyone. And Matthew chapter 21 describes this really well, starting in verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. What do you think that is? That's Jesus, right? This became the chief cornerstone. Uh, this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. This is talking about the Gentiles. Verse 44. And he who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. Okay, so this is pretty powerful. God's texting about it right now. So the church age is the time when God is actually building his universal church. The time when he's saying, basically, whosoever will, let them come. That's what the church age is all about. Now, when I say universal church, I mean whoever will believe. And when I say church, I'm talking about the big C church. Have you ever heard that phrase, the big C church? And what that means is, listen, denominations, we made that junk. Okay, I, I love it. You know, I'm saying this, you know, facetiously, but you see denominations fighting about who's right and which one's the most righteous. And whenever they ask me which denomination you think's best, I say none of them. Because there, there were no denominations. We created that so we would have something to fight about and something to make us feel superior. We created that. In God's eyes, there is one church, a big C church. And what that means is anyone who's believed becomes a part of the body of Christ. That is his church. That is his real church. So you can call yourself Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Methodist, whatever. If you've believed in Christ, you are in the big C church, the body of Christ. If you have not believed in Christ, you are not. That's the only church that matters. And when you enter the church that, that Christ offers you, you don't have to take classes. You don't have to pay dues. You just have to believe. That's the church that we need to be worried about. Okay, so this, this, this church age 
is when he's building this universal church. It's when, he's, when God is offering whosoever will to come and believe. Now, in John 6, 40, Jesus gives this invitation. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son, that means to perceive who he is, to understand who he is. So everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have what? Eternal life. You guys got to respond on that. I know this is early crowd, but it says they'll have what? Eternal life. Get excited. My goodness, you're going to heaven if you believe. It says they'll have eternal life, and I myself will raise them up on the last day. Right? Now, here's the thing that's important to remember. We are still in that undetermined time span. We're still in it right now. That undetermined time span that started at the, you know, the 69th week ended at the triumphal entry of Christ. And that's when it started, and we're still in that undetermined amount of time right now. Now, so the next thing to happen on the end-time timeline is the rapture. That's the next thing to happen. And I don't know about you guys, if that makes me excited. I've had people say, that scares me. That does not scare me. How many people are ready to go? I mean, I want to go. How many people want to go when the bills are due? (laughs) Right? How many people want to go right before your wife lectures you? I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hands. (laughs) Do not raise your hands. That is a trap. But I am excited. I cannot wait. That's the next thing to happen. And we're going to take a look at this. The Apostle Paul talks about this in great detail in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that's important, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have what? Who have what? Is it not up there? Is there yeah. As those who have no hope. Thanks, guys. Anyway, <laughs> every once in a while, I think they sit back there and go, I am going to stick him. Watch this, <laughs> right? Right, but it says, uh, as do the rest who have no hope. See, Paul didn't want believers to be uninformed about, about what's going to happen to believers when they die. Now, notice he said those who are asleep. And the reason that is is because the Hebrews didn't like to use the word death. They just didn't like it. So when they spoke of someone dying, they would say someone was asleep or sleeping or in slumber. And everyone understood that meant death because they just would not use that word. They didn't like to use the word death because it means separation. And to them, they felt like saying someone died meant they were eternally separated. So they would not use that word. So when he said, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, he's talking about, I don't want you to not understand what happens to those who have died. Okay, so... Now let's move on because he's going to discuss what happens to the living and the dead at Jesus' return. 1 Thessalonians 4, 14. He says, for if we believe, now that's very important. If he says, if we believe, he's talking to believers. That's an easy one. Okay, for if we believe, just making sure. For for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring what? With him. That's really important. We'll bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So that's those who have what? Those who have died. He will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Those who have fallen asleep in Jesus is talking about believers who have passed on. Verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. That means we will not beat them. Okay, we're not going to go ahead of them. Verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This means those who have passed away in Christ will be resurrected first. What does that mean? We're not going to get, 
we're not going to have these bodies. Did you know that? We are not going to have these bodies. Aren't you happy about that? Listen, I have bulging discs. I don't want to be in heaven going, hey, Jesus, what's up? You know, I don't want that. You know, my hair is falling out. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm telling you all my secrets. Yeah, I have allergies. No, but I'm just saying, I don't want to take this body into eternity. And here he's telling us we won't have to take that body into eternity because it says the dead in Christ will rise first. So that means that when he's returning, the dead in Christ who are in spirit form will get their glorified bodies, bodies that don't grow old, bodies that don't die, bodies that don't get sick. That's what they're going to get their glorified bodies before we get our glorified bodies. I think that is so important. Verse 17, it says, Then we who are alive and remain will be what? Caught up. That's talking about? Right. The word caught up in the Latin is raptura. That's where we get our word rapture from. Okay. So it says, Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So this event that he was talking about, this this return of Christ, the first return of Christ where he doesn't actually touch ground, where he just comes down and says, y'all come up, right? That time, that time is something that should be comforting to us, something we should look forward to, right? He was trying to comfort them. We should be anxiously awaiting that time frame. Can you just imagine? Has anyone ever sat and tried to, you know, do it in your mind and think of what that's going to look like? Anybody done that? You know, when I first became a believer, they said, the sky will tear open. So at first I saw like big hands going, you know, ripping it open. I don't know. But all I know is I, I am excited about that day because he's going to come back and all those people who have passed on in Christ are coming with him. When I preach a Christian funeral, I always tell, I always tell people there's going to be a great reunion someday. I mean, a great reunion when that person who has passed on comes back and they're perfect. And they'll know you, and you'll know them. And not only will you get the ultimate glory of being with Christ, but all those people who have passed on, you'll get to see them healthy and happy and be with them for eternity. I just, I just think that's amazing. And because of that, he said we shouldn't grieve as those who don't have that hope. And those who don't have that hope, if you haven't believed, that promise is not to you. I mean, that sounds mean, but I mean, believing is free. Right? It's free, so if you don't believe, it's kind of hard to blame God for that one. It's kind of like if you're drowning and someone throws you a life jacket and you go, no, I got this, and you drown. It's not the guy who threw you the life jacket's fault. You didn't take it. So he's saying we shouldn't grieve as those who rejected the life jacket, basically, right? Because here's the thing. Why would we grieve when God has made us a promise that death and the grave have no power over us? None. Another thing I always tell people when I'm preaching funerals of a believer You know, the graveside is the most difficult part. Wouldn't you agree? And so what I always try to remind them is there's never been a believer. Since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there has never been a believer enter a grave. It doesn't happen. See, that's where we store these broken down jalopy bodies we got right now. Right? They go back to the dust that we came from. You want to be humbled? We came from dirt. We came from dirt. The only thing that made us good was he made like little human mud pies and and shaped them and breathed into us. And it was his breath that animated us and made us living beings. So this body that came from dirt will return to dirt. And we're done with it. We get a new one, right? So he's promised us that that grave can't defeat us. Death can't defeat us. That's why we should comfort one another 
with these words. Now, another reason this is so important is because the rapture actually kicks off the 70th week. It kicks off the 70th week. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There are a lot of different views on when the rapture is going to take place. There's a lot of different views on that. Okay, I'm not going to discuss all of them. I'm going to tell you what I believe and prove why I'm right and everybody else is wrong. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm, I'm going to tell you what I believe and why I believe it. But here's the thing I want to tell believers. Don't fight over that stuff. You'll see believers fighting back and forth about that. And I'm like, listen, let's just get down to the brass tacks here. You believe this way about the end of time. I believe this way. But if we both have trusted Jesus Christ, does that really matter? Does it? I mean, it's cool to know. And it's awesome to find out the promises he's made us. But in the end, when we get to heaven, we'll know who was right. And then you can say, you're sorry to me. No, I'm just kidding. No, but then we can, we'll, we'll discuss that in heaven. But it, I don't want anybody fighting over this, all right? But I do want to tell you what I believe and explain why I believe it. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Anybody ever heard of that? And it is exactly what it says it is. It means that we will be raptured before the tribulation period. Now, a lot of people say, how can you believe that? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to explain that. Here's some of the reasons I believe that. Now, and there's a lot more than this, but this is all we have time for. First, God has always promised believers that they would not have to experience his wrath. And when he's talking about wrath, it means that day of judgment. We don't have to experience that. 1 Thessalonians 1.8, I'm going to read several scriptures here. 1 Thessalonians 1.8 says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia, but in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report, uh, report about us what kind of a reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols and serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from what? The wrath to come. First Thessalonians 5.8 says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Underscore that one, please. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Luke 21, starting in verse 36, Jesus says, But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he's telling people, you know, listen, when he's talking to him, he said, if, if you want to escape that, pray. If you want to pray that you escape that, believe in me. Okay, so time and time again, he talks about escaping the wrath to come, being delivered from the wrath to come. So being raptured before the tribulation, in my opinion, is one of the greatest benefits of being a believer. I mean, this is one of the greatest benefits of being a believer. Because this 70th week we're going to talk about next week is really bad. I mean... It's, you know, how many people have watched movies about this stuff? Yeah, that doesn't touch it. That doesn't touch what it's actually going to be like, right? This is a benefit to believing is that we get to escape that. Remember what the purpose of this tribulation period is? It, the purpose of the tribulation period was so that God could turn Israel back to Christ. And he knew it would take something extreme like, like seeing prophecy come to life 
in something as, I mean, as huge a scale as seeing the Antichrist come to power and take over the world. And when they see that, they're going to go, oh my gosh, that was Jesus that we crucified. This is going to be a huge event. And the whole purpose of that event was to turn Israel back to Christ. Okay, they were the ones that needed convincing. The people who believed during the church age, we don't need to be convinced. This time frame isn't even for us. It's not what it was designed for. All right. Now, the Apostle Paul dealt with this when he wrote the Thessalonians because there were a lot of false teachers going around back then, just like there are now. And what they were teaching, and it's funny how the devil works. He knows what to say and when to say it, doesn't he? He knows what to whisper in your ear at the right time. Anybody ever notice that? All right. And here, that's exactly what he was doing because here people are starting to convert and turn to Christ. and They're looking forward to this glorious day when Christ is going to deliver them. And so he starts having people spread the rumor that, oh, Christ already came. You missed it. There were teachers teaching, yeah, you guys already missed it. Christ has already returned. So the Apostle Paul had to deal with that. He had to confront that. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of, the, listen to this, to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Okay, that's very important. Underscore that if you're following along. He said, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our what? Gathering, gathering together with him. Okay, just let that roll around your mind. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so he wants to deal with that. Now, one thing you always have to remember when you're studying scripture, context determines meaning. Context determines meaning. What that means is if you are reading the sports page, what do you expect to find on that page? Sports, if you are reading the fashion page, what do you expect to find? Pictures of me. No, you expect to find fashion. If you read the business section, you're going to be reading about business, okay? So the context of the sports page is sports, right. So he clearly lays out the context for us in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, he tells us that this is about Christ's return and him gathering believers together. That's the context of those verses. All right? And this is without a doubt talking about what? The gathering together. What's that going to be? The rapture. So he's talking to them about this. Okay, this is really, really important. Without a doubt, this is talking about the rapture. Now, Paul also said that the return of Christ won't happen until the apostasy happens first. Let's look at that. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, that's talking about the return of Christ uh, and the rapture in the millennial kingdom, will not come unless the apostasy, underscore that in your Bibles, the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's talking about the Antichrist, the son of destruction. Okay? Now, listen, this is kind of telling you what he's going to do. We'll cover this more next week. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that uh, he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Okay, so we know that the apostasy has to happen before the Antichrist can be revealed. Right? Everybody with me so far? Okay, good. Now, the apostasy has to happen first. Here's where people get confused. The Greek word apostasy, one of the definitions, it can be, defined as to fall away or to rebel. 
Some translations even say it won't happen until the falling away, right? And that is a verb. The word there is apostasia in the Greek, right? And that usage of apostasia is a verb, falling away or rebelling, to fall away to rebel. That's a verb, okay? That's going to be really important. All right, now think about it for a second. That makes no sense at all. He says, it's not going to happen until everybody starts falling away or rebelling. Our first rebellion was Adam and Eve. There has always been rebellion. From day one, there's been rebellion. I mean, does anybody know anybody today that might be rebelling against Christ? You see what I mean? This has always been happening. So this wouldn't be much of a prophecy if it said, yeah, when people start rebelling against Christ, uh, you know, the Antichrist is going to come. Well, that's been happening since day one. But you've got to be careful when you're interpreting the Greek. You have to pay attention to every part of the word that's used. Right? So if you translate this, apostasia, as a verb, it doesn't make sense because that's been happening since the beginning of time. Right? Now, the Greek will also allow for this word to be used as a noun. And it is used as a noun two times only in the New Testament. Apostasy is used as a noun only two times in the New Testament. One of those times is in this passage. Two times in the New Testament it's used as a, noun, as a noun. This is one of those times. Now, when it's translated as a noun, which is what it is here, it literally means departure or departing. Departure or departing. And people say, oh, you're just guessing at what it means. No, I'm not. It's a noun. It's only used twice. And the noun, when, this is, when apostasy is translated as a noun, it means departure or departing. All right? And because it's a noun, it can't be describing an action. It has to be describing an event. All right? When you're talking about a noun that is to come, you're talking about something that is to come that's not an action. So you cannot use the verb tense here. It cannot be used. As a matter of fact, the first seven English translations made all translated it departure or departing. The first seven English translators, or English translations of the Bible, translated it departure or departing. Then we went haywire somewhere, right? Because that is the correct way to use that word. Now, I'm going to Read this again, and I'm going to replace the word apostasy with departure. And let's see if this starts to make sense. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, this is talking about the day of the Lord, meaning the rapture of the millennial kingdom, will not come unless the departure comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, this is the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Does that make sense? Now it starts to make sense. Now it not only flows smoother, it actually makes sense. Now a lot of people say, what's going to make that happen? How will this world be so dumb as to follow one leader who's literally going to be not just a political leader, he's going to be a spiritual leader. What's going to, something huge, something supernatural, something that has never been witnessed before since the creation of the world is going to have to happen to get people so desperate that they're longing for someone to lead them. Gosh, what could do that? 
Let's think, what could get everybody's attention in the world? I don't know, maybe in an innumerable amount of people just disappearing? Maybe that could do it? I mean, could you imagine for just a second? I mean, you're on a bus, and the bus driver and half the people on the bus are gone? Right? I know in the movies they show their clothes neatly folded. I don't know if that happened. I don't know if the Holy Spirit's going to go, just a second. You know, that's, I don't think that, you know, I don't know. But millions of people are going to be gone. Because they're going to be with the Lord in the new glorified bodies. And something I say sometimes, my wife tells me I shouldn't, which is, she says that a lot to me. Oh, yeah, bless my heart. And, uh, and she, but it's, you know, there are times when people won't listen, when I'm trying to witness to my family, and I say, listen, you better listen to me now why I care. And they go, what do you mean? Are you going to stop caring? I go, listen, when I am raptured and get a perfect body and perfect understanding, I'm going to see your fate as justice. I'm going to see it like God sees it. Uh, there's no me worrying about you then. You better take advantage of it now when I am focused on you. And I'm, maybe that is a little rough, but I think it sets the mood. What do you think? You know what I mean? But anyway, this, is, this actually makes sense. I believe that when this rapture happens, that's when the Antichrist is going to go, and I'm on. And he's going to step up. He's going to do amazing things, supernatural things, things that make you think of Jesus. Because he's the master counterfeiter. Have you ever noticed that? There's the Holy Trinity, Father, uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then you have the Antichrist, the Beast, and the False Prophet. He wants to have his own unholy trinity. He's always trying to copy what God has done. Well, when we're gone, I can just imagine him coming and saying, don't panic. Don't panic. God has just purified the earth of those people who are holding us back from reaching our potential. And he sent me to lead those of you who will have great potential. And you know how proud we are. People are going to suck that up, aren't they? Hook, line, and sinker. Now, do I know that's how they're going to do it? No, but it makes sense, doesn't it? Something like that, but I know that that will be what, what gets everyone's attention. We're going to talk more about that next week. I've got to be careful. Now, I want to talk about some application here. Okay, because next week we're going to talk about that 70, that 70 week prophecy, the 70th week of the 70 week prophecy. And I have no idea how long it's going to take, I'll be honest. It might be a few weeks going through that last week. We don't know. But, but you know, there's a ton of applications in every prophecy, and especially in this one. But the greatest, I think, application we can get from these passages right here is that both believers and unbelievers need to be ready. And. That is something that, that we cannot deny. We don't know when the end of this church age is going to be. We don't know. If he came right now, he'd be just, and prophecy would be perfectly fulfilled. Because that's the next thing to happen. Now, a lot of people think that one day God's just going to stand up and go, well, if I'm tired of this, I'm just going to end. That's not how it works. Before the first person was created, he knew when the end of time would be. We were just getting closer and closer to it every day. Right? We're working towards that. So it could be today, it could be tomorrow. We need to be ready. We have no control over when that comes. And even more importantly, and I said this before, if the world lasts another hundred years and you die tomorrow, all this is useless. You stand before him now. So we need to be ready. You know, believers, I know you don't have to worry about it, about going to heaven. You don't have to worry about the tribulation. There is something you have to worry about. We'll talk about that in a minute. But as an unbeliever, if you haven't trusted Christ, listen, I don't get it. It's free. It's not about who you are or who you've been. I don't get that, why you wouldn't. And I don't know about you, but I think missing hell is a big thing. You know, I don't want to go. It's not a vacation spot. I don't want to be there. 
You know, people, you know, movies make it look like the devil's ruling and he has people who are princes and all this. He's, gonna, he's not even in hell. The, the, the devil's roaming the earth right now. That's what the Bible tells us. You know what's going to happen when he is put in the lake of fire? He's not going to be ruling. He's going to be screaming like a punk like everybody else. That's, I mean, that's, a, that's the final punishment. He's not going to have any control there. I don't know about you. But one of the biggest motivating factors, and call it selfish, if you will, that, that made me come to Christ was I did not want to go to hell. Anybody else? Did that motivate anybody else to believe? And not only would we not have to go to hell when we believe, we can skip that tribulation. Right? And, I mean, it's not like a bad family reunion. We're talking, it's terrible. This is, this is a terrible seven years. And you get to avoid that also. Now, let me come back to you believers. Because, yes... We don't have to worry about the tribulation. Yes, we don't have to worry about hell. You are eternally saved. That cannot change. Some people may tell you that. We like to call them wrong. Okay, that cannot change. But because we don't have to worry about hell, and because we don't have to fear the tribulation period, I feel like maybe we've become complacent. Maybe a little lazy. Right, because it's almost like we think, since we don't have to worry about those things, we can do whatever the heck we want. And it's really been troubling my heart lately. I've been talking to Pastor Nathan about it. It's really been, really been troubling me about the condition of believers' hearts nowadays. It, it really bothers me. And it seems like things just keep popping up. There's nothing that hurts worse than when someone comes and tells me about something terrible someone from my church has done. I don't expect you guys to be perfect. And you know what? And I make mistakes and I sin. But it hurts me when someone does and just doesn't care. And it seems like believers just don't really care anymore. We look less like Christ and more like the world every day. It's getting harder to determine who is a believer and who is not. And, and that bothers me. It doesn't change anything. You know, if you're that believer who doesn't live it, it's not going to cost you your salvation. It will cost you something. I'll tell you that here in a minute. But it bothers me that that's how little you care about the great sacrifice Christ made for you. We should be worried less about fitting into the world and more about being holy. And you know what holy means? That's blown way out of proportion. You know what holy means? The word literally means other than. Other than. That's what it means. It means that we should be other than the people who have not believed, not better than. It just means that they should be able to see that the creator of the universe lives here. That's an awful big tenet to have in your heart for people not to know it. And, and it really bothers me because it seems like people are just getting flippant about it. The Apostle Paul predicted this, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Starting in verse 1, it says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be... Now listen, tell me if this doesn't sound like even some believers you know. Maybe even sound like you, because sometimes this sounds like me. I hate it when pastors get up and act like they got it all nailed down. I don't. Okay? But listen. For men will become lovers of self. Anybody know anybody like that? Lovers of self? Lovers of money. I'm sure you don't know anybody like that. Boastful? Arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, 
unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Oh, Christians don't do that. Who's ever heard of a Christian gossiping? <laughs> right? Malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Now, everyone always assumes that that's just talking about unbelievers. But Paul was talking to believers about unbelievers and believers. Right? He was, because there are some people the Bible tells us that have forgotten they were purged of their sins. You can actually get in a terrible condition as a believer. God will not bless your life. You won't get any rewards, but you can get in that position. Right? You can be put in that position. And when Paul says in the last days, he's talking about the church age. We are in the last days. Literally, the next thing to happen is the return of Christ. We're in the last days, and this prophecy is about the last days. And I see it all over the place. And sometimes I see it myself. It, it seems like we're more concerned with what we can get away with than being holy. Right? Hey, as long as the pastor doesn't know, as long as the church doesn't know, as long as other Christians don't know, you're good to go. And that, that really bothers me. It really, really bothers me. We should be more concerned with being Christ-like than what we can get away with. I mean, I've even heard of groups that get together and do what they shouldn't do. Groups of believers. And they keep it private so no one in the church finds out. I'm going, you should be worried about God who already knows and is watching. I, I've never seen in my years of being a believer, just over 20 years, so I got saved when I was three. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But in just over 20 years, I've never seen where believers are more comfortable being greedy, using bad language. I mean, it stuns me. Using bad language, getting drunk. And I, I, whenever I ask them, would you do that if Jesus were sitting across from you? Well, no. And I go, well, I got some bad news from you. He's sitting across from you. He's with you everywhere you go. You know, and, and it bothers me. And, and listen, I'm not judging. This is me. I, I don't get drunk or anything, but I'm just saying, <laughs> better watch what I say. But there are times that some of those things listed are me. So I'm not innocent, but what I'm saying is that we shouldn't be okay with that. We shouldn't be okay with that. It gets, we're at a point now where, you know, people are like, church is last priority after everything else. That shouldn't be, you know. It says we're not to forsake the, uh, forsake the assembling together, as has become the habit of some. You know why? Because when we get together, it encourages us to love and good deeds. It trains us. That's what Hebrews 10.23 tells us. I don't understand why we're here. But every time I study the end of time, this, can, this can, comes in my mind. And just when you think it can't get worse, along comes social media. Now listen, I'll be honest with you. Social media can be a blessing. I'm not saying it's all bad. But I do believe it is the single greatest curse to hit our world since its creation other than the devil. Maybe that's a little strong. But think, it can be used good. It can be. But... A lot of times it's just a platform to find ways to be more worldly. Believers spend more time on social media than they ever do in the Word of God. Wouldn't you agree? Than they ever do pray. It's to the point where you, sh you share every last personal detail, whether anybody wants to know or not. And I got a newsflash for you. We don't want to know. Think about it. Nothing 
It's private. You fight with your husband, it's on Twitter. Or it's on Facebook. You know, it's on Instagram. I mean, someone makes you mad, instead of going and talking to them, you put a big dumb post that tries to be, you know, hazy so that no one knows who you're talking about, but everybody knows who you're talking about. You know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. You go to dinner, here's what I'm eating. Who cares? Look at this steak. Seen one. Eat your steak and shut up. You know? Look, we're on our anniversary together. Put your dang phone down then. You know, with the kid with some quality time. Put your phone down, fool. Be with your kid. That is where we're at right now. Here's the one that cracks me up more than anything. Believers who are trying to hide their poor behavior will put it on social media. Not only does God know, you just told the world. You know, and I'm, I'm stunned. You think you'd at least be good at hiding it. Putting it on a platform where millions upon millions of people can see it and where Facebook can sell it, you know? Now comes the conspiracy theory. But just saying. This is what's happening today, and, and I'm really concerned. I'm really concerned because the lights that he has put in the darkness are not shining like they used to. And I'm talking about me too. Not shining like they used to. Sometimes I feel like we think we're just not going to be disciplined and we're not going to be judged. And Paul said in Galatians 6, he said, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that he will also reap. You know what that means? He's saying, I'm not a fool. You don't get away with anything. Right? That's what he's saying. Yes, we don't have to fear hell or the tribulation period, and we'll talk about a lot of that more next week, but we still will be disciplined. There are still consequences. And I'm going to finish with a, a verse I think everybody should know. Okay, and this is talking about believers. And then we'll start, when I close, we'll pick up next week in the 70th week. But believers should all know this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 10. It says, according, according to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, let me stop for a second, builds on the foundation, what's the foundation? So anyone building on that foundation must be what? A believer. You have to be a believer to build on the foundation of Christ. Uh, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. A lot of times when people see fire in the Bible, they automatically think, hell, it's not talking about hell. The Bible also uses fire more often to talk about, about purification, because that's how they purified things. Okay, So it will be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But listen, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. That means that, that God promised you eternal life, and he will give it to you, even if you don't deserve it, because you don't, and you never will. But those people who do nothing, you will get to heaven, and you will smell like brimstone when you get there, if you walk that close to the line. You will have no reward. You'll sit the bench in the kingdom. Until, I mean, I'm just being honest. He can't bless you here like he wants to. And the reason I finish with this is every time I'm reminded we're in the last days, I'm reminded that we're not living like we're in the last days. We're living like we're going to live forever with no consequences, and that's not the case. We are put here for one reason, to glorify God and to draw other people to his kingdom. And if you're not doing that, you're not holding up your end of the deal. And I'm talking to me too. 
So this end time study is more than finding out when all the cool stuff's going to happen or the scary stuff, depending on your viewpoint. It's about seeing where you're at and how you're performing in that time. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your heads. Now, if this is your first time, we always give an invitation, and, and we don't ask people to come forward or anything like that. Uh, we don't want to put any undue pressure on people. It's just that I believe the Word of God is powerful. I know that it doesn't matter who's teaching it, what style they teach in. When the Word of God is taught, it does something. It's alive, is what Hebrews tells us. And it moves in us. And if, if someone's not sure where they stand, and maybe the Word of God has convinced you of that, I'm not going to point you out, but I do want to pray for you. And I literally pray for those hands and those people that make eye contact with me. If, if you're not sure where you stand, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. I'm not going to chase you down. Bless those people. I'm not going to email you. I'm not going to find you. I'm just going to pray for you. Bless those people. And if you're watching online or listening on one of the podcasts, I'll be praying for you because God knows. But I also want to pray for believers, and I do this every week, but I really want to pray. I mean, when I study about the end of time and, and realize that we're in the last days, I'm so disappointed in myself and in all of us because it seems like every day we're starting to assimilate more and more into the world and look less and less like Christ. It's more about what we can have and less about what we can give to people, the love of Christ. We need to get back to that. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. God, you've given us more than we deserve. None of us deserve heaven. All of us sin. All of us are imperfect by our very nature. We were created from the dust of the earth, and a lot of times that's evident. But God, the fact that your love and your grace is more powerful than our mistakes and our sin blows my mind. I'm so humbled and I'm so thankful that you love us despite us. If there's someone here who doesn't know you, God, whatever's holding them back, I just pray you move that out of their mind and let them just trust that what Jesus did was enough to guarantee their eternal life. And on the authority of your word, if they believe that, they'll have it. It was never designed to be hard. It was designed to be free. It was never designed for the perfect. It was designed for humanity who is sinful by nature. And if they make that decision, I pray that they reach out to us or to a good Christian organization or a Christian friend that they know because we want them to have someone to walk with them in their new journey. And God, for those of us that are believers, every last one of us falls short. Your word tells us that. Please don't let that be okay. Please don't let us get so used to doing things our way and turning from you that that becomes normal. Please make our hearts heavy. Burden us when we do things that, that could push people away from you, that could draw us away from you. Burden our hearts, Lord. Give us a fire to serve you, to realize we're in our last days. We need to be busy drawing people into the kingdom. Give us a passion for that so that when people hear us speak, they hear you, and they see the things we're doing, they see you working through us. God, we pray as we leave here that you would keep us safe that we would hunger for your word, that we would seek you in prayer. And if you don't return to take us home before we get the opportunity to come here and worship again, let us come here with a renewed zeal and a passion to hear your word. We just thank you for all things, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.